Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. If you have a Bible, open it to James chapter 4. I'd love for you to take your copy of God's Word and open it to James 4. If you don't have a Bible, please use one of the ones that you can find in the chair rack in front of you. And if you don't have a copy, if you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible as our gift to you. As you're finding James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 is our text this morning. A special welcome to some guests this morning from Beijing, China, some students from A-plus Learning Academy, some friends of ours, where my son Joseph taught a few years ago for a year, and now one of our members, Teddy Nagelvort, is a teacher, and we've got some, some uh, young people from that school and their headmaster, who's become a friend of my wife, and I don't know where Hu Hong Tian is, but she's here somewhere. Um, there she is. Good to see you, Hu Hong. We're glad that you guys are here. You may have seen on the news that they've been visiting the United States. And because of what's going on in China, they're kind of stranded here for a while. And so we're really grateful that you guys are here. And um, we love you guys. It's great to have you here. We all have a decision to make <clears throat> this morning. And really, every time we open our Bibles, every time. We gather together every time we read God's word for ourselves and every time we gather together and open up God's word. Will we stand in authority over the Bible or will we humble ourselves and put the Bible over us as our authority? I hope every time we open the Bible, I hope this morning that our answer is the latter. Now, we all have obstacles that we have to overcome. It's a holiday weekend. It's rainy. There's distractions in the room every Sunday we gather. We have to fight through those distractions, and the question still remains. The decision that we have to make still remains. Will we make ourselves the authority, or will God's word be the authority in our lives? Chapter 4 of James is one of the most critical chapters for understanding the Christian life and sanctification in the New Testament. I'm going to read the first 12 verses, but this morning we're just going to focus on the first six verses, but I think to give us context, it will be helpful for me to read through verse 12. James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? 
Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, let's ask the Lord to help us understand this text. These are weighty words. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather this morning, as we've read already, from Psalm 138, that you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Make that true in our hearts and our minds this morning. Exalt your word above our hearts. May we humble ourselves underneath the authority of your word and teach us beautiful things. For believers in this room, humble us, melt our hearts, make us more like Jesus. For my friends that are in this room that are not yet trusting in Christ, Lord, I pray the same thing, that you would humble them and bring them to a place where they would despair of themselves so that they would have no other hope but to trust in Christ, who alone is our hope, and that you would save them. Lord, I pray that you do these things for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's work through these six verses. I have no outline, no notes on the screen, which is unusual. I have six verses in James chapter 4. Verse 1, James writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So the context here is that James is concerned about fights the, the context is he's writing to the church. So on some level, I think this would apply to human interaction in general. Maybe you could take this text and apply it to your work environment or to your platoon or to your battalion, certainly to your marriage, to friendships in general. But the context here is that there are quarrels and fights Amongst the people of God, the setting of James is he's writing to the local church. We, we go back to James chapter 2 where he's, he's admonishing them not to, favor, not to show favoritism towards certain people or another when they come into the worship gathering. And so he's talking about Christians in the local church. And this is a serious issue about how we treat each other as Christians because, as the song tells us, we know that we are Christians by our love, by our love, right? Jesus even says that, that the world will know us by the way we love one another. But, but the sad report is that for many churches, in many places, Actually, they are known for their bickering and their hostility. And the world, the song for that church is, is more likely sung, or more appropriately sung, the world will know us because of our hate, because of our hate, because of our hate. 
And so this is a serious issue about how we get along because God intends for the life of his people, the life of the church, to be a kind of aroma and witness to an onlooking world. And so James is concerned about disputes within the body of Christ. And he, so that's the problem, is quarrels and fights among the people of God. And what's the cause of these fights and quarrels among us, among the people of God? He tells us in the second half of the verse, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So he's saying that the reason that we are fighting in the local church is because there's something inside of us, these passions that are still at war within us. Now this sentence, the second half of verse number one, tells us a lot about the Christian life. Hopefully it's a reminder to us, but the Bible describes salvation clearly as new life. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. That's clear, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. But in other parts of the New Testament, we read that even though we have been made new, we were dead, and now we've been made alive. In fact, that's salvation. Salvation is not something that we decide to get ourselves into. The Bible's very clear that we're dead in our sins, and God, through Christ, in Ephesians chapter 2, makes us alive. So if you're a Christian, it's not because you worked yourself into it, it's because God in his kindness, who is rich in mercy, made you alive. You've been born again. You were dead in your sins, and God resuscitated you. He resurrected you, and he made you alive, and he gave you new life, and with that new life comes the gift of faith, whereby you exercise it in Jesus, and that faith, which is a gift of the regeneration, the work of God in you, causes you to trust in Jesus, and you are immediately justified. Your sins are forgiven, and you've been made new. That's clear. That's what the Bible says. But the Bible also says that there's this strange kind of paradox in the Christian life. Even though we have been made new, and even though the Bible speaks of our future state in heaven, as in the past tense, Paul says that you've been justified and you are already glorified. Even though we know that we will make it all the way home, there is this sense that we are dealing with this dead man who's dead that Christ has done away with, but we still have to deal with. This remaining residual sin. Yes, we are new creations, but we have to, and this is what James is getting at here in the second half of verse one, we have to deal with these passions that have been crucified on the cross with Christ that are still at war within us. In other words, we're all sort of fighting our former zombie selves. I actually think, and I've said this before, I think that's why our culture is so fascinated with zombie movies and shows because it kind of is an echo of a sort of spiritual reality. We're fighting our former selves, a dead men walking in a sense. To illustrate this for you, about a year and a half ago, Paul Fincher took me alligator hunting in South Georgia with his dad and his brother. And we were down somewhere in some lake in South Georgia, near Bainbridge, Georgia, on a little boat. It was all legal, by the way. Paul had applied for this tag, and so we were out on this river, lake, fishing for gators. And it was an amazing experience. I was just, I was just along for the ride, but you, you sneak up on these gators, 
and you have this big treble hook on this huge fishing rod, and you throw the hook over the gator who you try and sneak up on on the top of the water, and you try and hook the gator's body on the side of the, on the top of the water, and then reel the gator in too close to the boat so that you can shoot the gator. That's what you do. Just like in, I felt like I was in an episode of Swamp People. We thought, shoot him, shoot him. And so we, we did that. Paul or his brother or somebody, it was all kind of a blur to me now, they hook this gator, they reel it close to the side of the boat, and this big gator, I mean, this thing was 10 feet, is flailing around, and Paul's dad, with just expert markmanship, pulls out a pistol and puts a bullet in the head of this gator right between his eyes. Boom, he was dead. This gator's dead. And Paul and his brother lift this gator into this small little boat that we're in, Paul tapes up this gator's mouth and puts this gator, I'm in this one little seat, the only place to really sit, and Paul basically puts this gator and his face and his mouth right in between my knees. And we go on to hunt more gators. This gator was dead. But about 30 minutes later, as I'm sitting there looking at this dead gator, it starts moving again. And I'm thinking, what, Paul, what's going on here? You're, I just saw your dad shoot this thing in between the eyes. This thing's dead. And he says, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's just ripped. That's what they do. Their nervous system still goes for a while. This thing could be moving for another couple hours. And so I'm trying to back up as far as I can get from this dead gator who was still moving. Friends, that's a picture of the Christian life. Our old man is dead, but we still have to war with the nervous system of our sin that's been defeated on the cross. And the point that James is making here in James chapter 1 is that the problem in the church is not so much out there and those people, but the problem is more in here in my heart, and in your hearts. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5. He's speaking about this battle that we all fight. For the desire, he's talking to Christians. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Romans 7, verse 15. Remember we went through this when we went through Romans Paul says, and I think he's speaking about the Christian experience here, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. There is this fight that goes on in all of us. It's, it's an internal war. It's called sanctification, and it causes trouble. The trouble inside, the remaining trouble inside causes trouble outside. Now, a couple things before we move on to verse 2. Let, let's, let's, let's make sure that we understand what James is not saying here. He's not saying that anger is always wrong. or He's not saying that arguing or objecting is not always wrong. Jesus, we see a picture of Jesus in his righteous indignation in the temple, turning over the money changers. Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. There's a way to be righteously upset at injustice that we see around us. So all disagreements in the church are not necessarily a result of sinful passions. We should 
we should certainly at times speak up. We should contend for the faith. There are theological issues, some of them which we were talking about on Wednesday night that are very important that we must discuss. And at times, it will even lead us to be at odds with our brothers and sisters who disagree with us on things that we think that the Bible clearly teaches. That is not what James is talking about here. But even when we do have to disagree or contend or in a sense fight with people about the truth of the Bible, even those that we know are Christians, we should do so in a way that the Bible commends. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And then he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 and following. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents. So there will be times for fights, obviously. Correcting his opponents with gentleness that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So to be clear, some battles need to be fought. But James's point here is that the battles that we do fight, the quarrels that we get into, should not be driven by our selfish and sinful motives. And one last thing on this verse before we move on to verse 2. Just a, a, a pastoral point about church difficulty and church quarrels. Yes, it is often, in fact, almost destructive. Yes, it is painful. None of us like it. And by the way, I am not looking for it. I am not trying to stir it up. And I thank God that we as a church have had very, very little of it in our 15 years as a history. By the way, just so you know, just to put it on your mind, in April of this year, we will celebrate our 15th year as a church. We had our first public service on April 17th of 2005. This will be our 15th year as a church. And when I look back at the history of Crosspoint, there has been very, very little, in fact, almost no church-wide controversy or tension or difficulty, and I praise God for that. However, Many of us have come from situations where there have been church difficulties, and certainly in the future we may face it as a church, and even on smaller levels we will face difficulty relationally with people. And I want to say this pastorally, that however in God's providence, we should not be too discouraged about the challenges that we have in church community because I think according to the Bible, it's part of God's way that he actually molds us and makes us more like Christ by even using the difficulties that we have with one each other, with one another to form us more into the image of Christ. Where do I get that from? I get that from the Bible. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and he's speaking to the Corinthian church, which was an absolute mess and full of sinful passions that warred within them. And he's talking to them particularly in 1 Corinthians 11 about communion and how they were being selfish in their execution of the Lord's Supper. And he says in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. In other words, when you guys gather together as a church, you're actually taking steps backwards, not forwards. What a terrible thing to say about a local church. But listen to what he says in verse 18. 
For in the first place, when you, come to, when, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So notice his logic in verse 19. He's saying that there's going to be disagreement, there's going to be strife, there's going to be difficulty in any community, and in God's providence, there must be be factions among you so that it can weed out people that don't know, truly know the Lord. Now, you will not get that in any church mailer, uh, church, church growth mailer or, doc, or you know, handout. This is how you grow your church. Don't run away from church fights so that the true Christians can truly be revealed. You will, that, 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 they, they don't talk about that at church growth conferences, but they do talk about it in the Bible. I'm going with the Bible. So don't get discouraged is what I'm trying to say pastorally. Don't get discouraged because church life can be really, really tough. Amen? And sometimes, in, in fact, in all things, God is providentially in control and he uses it to sanctify us. So don't be discouraged. Again, I'm not looking for a fight. I'm just saying when it comes, God is not wringing his hands. Verse two, you desire, James says, and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And so what is he saying here in verse two? He's saying that you want, you desire something, and I think the clear implication is that you want it selfishly He's going to attack selfish desires here in a second, and he's actually going to tell us what's behind our selfish desires. He's saying you want something, you desire something sinfully because of these passions in you, and you don't have, you covet, and so you murder. Now, that's a serious charge, and I don't think James is saying here that the people in the church that he was writing to were literally, physically killing someone, each other, although I guess that's possible. But I think he is spiritualizing this, and he's saying that they were murdering each other's reputations. We think about James chapter 3, when we looked at the tongue and how the tongue is like a forest fire set among us, that we can, we can kill each other with our tongues. And I think, he, I think that's what James is getting at here, that they were murdering each other, spiritually speaking, with their tongues. And what is it that they do not have? He says, you desire and do not have. What is it that they don't have? Well, James doesn't exactly say. But I think the context, in fact, some suggest as people through the history of the church have looked at this verse and thought about it, is that it's pointing towards a kind of wisdom that will enable them to gain recognition as leaders in the community because the, the theme of wisdom and getting wisdom was, is a major theme throughout James. It's in James chapter 1, and it's right at the end of James chapter 3. And what's behind this desire, this selfish desire for wisdom, is a kind of status that would make them leaders. And so they are selfishly looking at church community to make much of themselves. They're wanting to prop themselves up rather than to lift up Christ or to serve their brothers and sisters. 
It's the same spirit that we see in, in, in Jesus' disciples in the gospel several times when James and John, these two brothers, come to Jesus and they say, okay, this is really wonderful. Things are going great. Which one of us, Jesus, is going to sit at your right hand at the kingdom? In other words, we're in this for our own exaltation. And Jesus looked at them and he says, you don't know what you're asking for. That's an indication of this desire we are, we are using, at least the people, we, I think, in James chapter 4, are using using the church to exalt themselves. And as a result, they aren't getting what they're asking for. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. Now, this is a context alert. Context alert. Okay? This verse has been abused over the years and is often used out of context. Now, I came to faith in a stream of the church, which often quoted this verse out of context, a kind of hyper-faith, hyper-charismatic church that would look at this verse and say that the reason you aren't experiencing certain things in your life or gifts in your life, the reason you don't have some spiritual gift is because you haven't asked for it. You do not have because you do not ask, or in some other versions, Shorthand, you have not because you ask not. So if you would just ask, and you would ask in more faith, then God will give you what you're, what you're wanting. That's not entirely the context here. It's not that they are not asking, as the next verse will tell us, but it's that they're not asking for the right thing. They are being led and dominated and blinded by their selfish passions that is obscuring their spiritual vision. And so it's not that they aren't asking, they aren't asking, verse three will tell us that, but they're asking selfishly. They're asking for themselves to be propped up. And that's the problem. There is a spiritual war going on inside of the people and going on inside of us, and it's clouding their vision, it's clouding our vision. Thus, they aren't asking for the right things. They don't have wisdom because they're not asking for it rightly. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it. This is James tells us the problem is you ask and you don't receive because you're asking wrongly to spend it on your passions. We aren't getting what we want because we're praying, asking for the wrong thing. The aim of the people's prayers is often self-centered and self-absorbed. That's what James is saying. Now, this text is not saying that we shouldn't bring our personal requests to God. Of course we should, daily. I think about Jesus' instruction in the Sermon on the Mount on how to pray, that we should pray that the Lord would give us our daily bread. This text is not saying that God is not interested in the small details of our lives. Clearly, he is. Matthew chapter 10, I think it is. Jesus says that he knows the number of hairs that we have on our head. Psalm 139 says that he knows our thoughts before one of them comes to be. Actually, those type of prayers for daily sustenance and for even the small things in our life actually display a dependence on God and bring great glory to him. So he's not saying don't ask for small things. That's a good thing. Pray without ceasing. 
What he is saying is that when we pray, we shouldn't pray merely selfishly for our selfish passions and for jealous reasons so that we would be exalted. When we do that, we covet and we make the object of our worship actually ourselves rather than God. And that's the problem going on here in the church. And when we try and make ourselves God, well, everybody around us rebels against that and it causes fights in the church. And God, out of his kindness, doesn't give us that because he loves us and he's a good father. And so often when God says no to our prayers, it's because we have not asked in accordance to his will. A good text to confess and pray before you pray as a kind of like intro to your prayers is the end of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, where King David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So, Lord, help search my heart. I don't, I, I, I don't even know if I can trust my own motives in this situation, but Lord, I'm just bringing this to you and help me pray rightly with right motives. So that's, the, that's the situation in the first three verses is that the people are fighting because of their passions inside of them. But now verse four, he goes deeper. We see that the problem is actually much more profound than just disordered hearts and passions The problem is actually that we, as God's people, are prone to cheat on God. Verse 4, James says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Verse 4 is one of the most important passages, scriptures, verses in all of James. James goes all in. He's saying that there's actually a deeper problem when it comes to your wrong passions. Your wrong passions have caused you to cheat on God, to join yourself with a counterfeit lover. What does James mean when he says adulterous people? Well, he's not talking about merely the physical adultery of married couples in the, in the church that he's addressing here in James, although clearly that's a problem, and certainly that there might have been some people that that applied to that he was writing to, and we know that clearly that's way out of bounds and a grievous sin. But he's speaking here about a spiritual adultery. And to understand this picture, we need to understand how the Bible describes the relationship between God and his people. Let me read you a few verses in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 54, this is God speaking to the nation of Israel. And he describes this relationship between him and his people as like a relationship between a husband and his wife. Isaiah 54 and verse 5 says, For your maker meaning God, is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. 
And there in that last verse, God is saying, because of your sin, I'm going to cut you off, but I will not forsake my people. I will bring them back to me. And that's this picture of this relationship between God and his people Israel in the Old Testament. We see it in Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 20. He says, surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you, and he's speaking to Israel, been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. And we won't take time to read it, but the whole book of Hosea, this prophet Hosea, is about this man that God has raised up to marry an adulterous woman named Gomer, a prostitute who flaunts her infidelity in the streets. And God says to this man, Hosea, he says, stay married to her. And ultimately, this becomes a picture of how God has joined himself to his bride, Israel, who is an adulterous wife to him. And the relationship between Homer, between Hosea and his wife, Gomer, is a picture of the relationship between Israel and God, which is a, rela- a picture of the relationship between us as the church and God. When we sin, when we love the world, when we give ourselves over, what's going on in our lives is bigger than just some sort of temporary out-of-bounds moment. More than just some warring passion, we are cheating on God. That's the picture that James gives us here. This is, verse 4 is a massively important verse to understand the Christian life. And note how James describes the Christian life. Implicit in this is a covenant relationship. When God saves us, It's not just this heavenly transaction whereby our sins are forgiven and our future eternal destiny is secured. And now, if we just kind of do our best, you know, eventually things will kind of work themselves out and we'll get to heaven. No, there is this covenantal relationship between God and his people. We are joined to God by faith in Christ. We are in him and he is with us. He's in us. That's why, friends, human marriage has such significance. Because of all the things that human marriage between a man and a woman is meant to do, obviously to to create offspring, to populate the earth, clearly. A man and a woman come together and they produce offspring. It's given to produce order in the world, certainly, clearly, order in our society, so that we're not all just fighting with one another, fighting over each other's men and women. There's to be order in marriage. But more primarily, the union between a man and a wife, and one of the reasons God is so adamantly against divorce in the Bible, is because marriage is intended to be a kind of picture of the relationship between God and his people. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5 says this very thing. It presents Christ as the heavenly groom who has come and saved and not just forgiven the sins of his people, his bride, the church, but he has joined himself to them and they are now one and nothing can rip his bride from his hands. That's why in a marriage ceremony, the preacher says, quoting scripture in Genesis chapter 2, that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto him a wife, and the two shall become one. 
They are one, and the relationship between a man and a woman on earth is meant to be a kind of picture of the gospel itself about how God does more than just forgive your sins. He does more than just make you alive out of your dead state. He joins himself to you as your heavenly husband and makes himself one with you. That's what salvation is. And as grievous as physical adultery is, even more grievous is spiritual adultery against God who is not only our maker and our savior, but in this sense, our covenantal head, our husband. And that's how James is describing the Christian life. Just a pause here, just a pause. Do you think of your salvation in that way? Is God so utterly committed to you that he's joined himself to you and do we see our sin friends we're americans man we have the ability to minimize and rationalize and justify anything and the challenge for us as we read this text is will we break through the clutter and the haze and the way that we minimize the Christian life? And will we see God's utter covenantal love and seriousness and salvation for us? And will we see the utter wickedness and treacherousness and adulterous nature of our sin against God? That's what James is wanting us to see. And what does he mean by the world? Friendship with the world is, is, a, is spiritual adultery. What does he mean? Well, clearly he's not talking about the physical world. He's talking about this fallen system of thought around us. This, counterfeit, this world that's full of counterfeit gods. And ultimately that's what sin is. Is that we decide for a temporary moment to divorce ourselves from God and we attach ourselves, we give ourselves to a false, a false God. And maybe that false God is ourselves. This is what John says at the end of the New Testament in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So there he describes what it is. He's saying that this world is the desires of the flesh. He's not talking about people. Of course we should love people. And of course we should love people that don't know the Lord. We're sent on a mission to bring the gospel to them. So he's not talking about that in the sense of the world. He's talking about the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life trying to worship ourselves, worship our own former passions, making much of ourselves. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world, verse 17, he concludes, is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So friendship with the world is to make ourselves an enemy of God. And that word enmity, enemy, is it's a striking word. It means that we put ourselves in a fixed position of hostility against God. What is James saying? He's clearly not saying that we shouldn't interact with the world around us. Some Christians, I think, read texts like this, and it causes them to with, 
withdraw and retreat from the world. And they end up, you know, building compounds in Idaho and Montana and stockpiling guns and doing crazy things and become cults. That's not what James is talking about. We read where Jesus says in John chapter 17 that he prays for his disciples and he says, I'm not taking them out of the world, but Father, we're leaving them in the world so that they will be witnesses for us. So no, he's not talking about leaving the world or hating the world or cutting yourself off from the world. He's talking about joining yourself to the world, this fallen system of thought, these worldly values, giving yourself over and being tossed to and fro by the values of the world. Here's just a question for us, friends, because we could do a whole series of sermons on just this idea of worldliness. Is there any part of my life that is being drawn, that is being influenced by the world? Is there any part of your life that's being drawn and influenced by the world? Is there any part of this church that's being drawn and influenced by the world? But just think about just the shows that we watch, the things that we take in, they are discipling us. And they are presenting a, a, a wretched and wicked and unbiblical picture of love, of relationships, of marriage, of human sexuality, of a whole host of things. And the more we drink from these broken cisterns, the more likely we are to take on and to desire the things of the world. And James here in this verse is telling us, he's telling us, don't cheat on God and love that broken world. Now, right now, we're, we all have a decision to make. You know, some of you may be, may be thinking, oh, well, Brad's just, man, he's just, it's, I knew this was just kind of a, I knew it, this is just some fundamentalist Bible-thumping church. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go with people that do. Friends, that's, that's not what this text is getting at, a list of things that we cannot or cannot do. This is not some external religious checklist. This is a heart, friends. And when we give ourselves over to these things, they lie to us and they tell us that pleasure is right around the corner, but we find ourselves, we turn one corner and it's not there, so we go down another corner and it's not there, and we find ourselves in a, ma a maze of counterfeit pleasures that never deliver. But the Christian life, this is the Christian life, God promises us joy. There is more joy in saying no to counterfeit pleasures than, than there is giving in to them. There is joy in Christ. There is joy in obedience. We don't have time to do that. We could do a whole other series of messages about the joy that comes with living for the Lord. But James here in this verse is warning us. He's saying that when we give ourselves over to these things, and friends, I'm just trusting. I'm just trusting on the Holy Spirit to apply these things to our life, to my life, so that he might bring something to our mind and warn us, even as I'm preaching, and even as you're in your own mind dealing with this in your own life, that God may give you a picture in your mind of something that you are doing that is Adultery is cheating on God and it's a warning to us saying, don't do that. Don't do that. I pray that God would be so kind to do that for us. 
And now on to verses five and six, which, which are so foundational of the Christian life. I know I keep saying that, but it's, it's, it's true. If the New Testament was a mountain range, verses five and six would be at least two of the peaks. If the New Testament was a mountain range, verses five and six would be at least two of the peaks. And here's the thing about verse five. You need to know, I've got just a few minutes left here to explain this verse to you. Verse five is maybe the most notoriously difficult and debated verse on how to translate in the entire New Testament. Let me read verse five for you. Or do you suppose, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and it's, gonna, it's going to translate this verse in a particular way that will lead you to a conclusion, but there are other ways to think about the original language that this verse comes from, and I'll explain it to you in a second. Let me read to you verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. And the debate is, what is that second half of the verse saying? He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. Okay, a couple things now. This is a controversial verse. This is a debated verse. First, let me just handle this for those of you that are, 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 are thinking maybe deeply or have heard this. The first part of verse 5 is actually uh, something that we need to think about because James is saying, in fact, he says that the Scripture, meaning the Old Testament, says, and then he gives us a quote here in the second half of verse 5. The potential problem, though, is that there is no verse in the Old Testament that says that. And the vast majority of time when the New Testament says that the scriptures say and then it gives a quote, there's a direct reference to an Old Testament verse, okay? There isn't a verse in the Old Testament that says exactly that. And so that has caused people problems through the years. But that shouldn't trouble us because there are times when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament and it's not quoting a verse uh, Old Testament verse word for word, rather it is just summarizing an Old Testament theme. So for example, in John chapter 7, in verses I think about 37 through 39, Jesus says of the Christian that out of our hearts, will he says, as the scripture says, out of our hearts will flow rivers of living water. Except there's no direct verse in the Old Testament that says that exactly. But here's the deal. Jesus is a much better Old Testament scholar than anybody else. In fact, Jesus, along with the Spirit and the Father, wrote the Old Testament. So I'm going to go with the fact that Jesus knows what he's talking about when he quotes the Old Testament. Amen? And what Jesus is doing in John chapter 7 is he's summarizing a theme of the new covenant that will out of us in our new saved regenerated state, out of the Christian will flow rivers of living water. And so we have an example in Jesus' ministry of him summarizing a theme. And that's what's going on here in James. James, and we'll get to this in a bit, what theme he's, he's bringing out. He's not quoting a direct Old Testament verse. He's summarizing a teaching of the Old Testament about how God yearns jealously over us. But let's get into that second part of this verse. 
there are two potential interpretations of this verse. One, maybe if you have a King James version or an older version, they interpret, the, the, the scholars that, that interpreted the original language of Greek, it's very complex, they took this passage to mean not that God is doing the, the, the yearning jealously over us, that's the way the ESV reads, that, that God is the one who is yearning jealously like a jealous husband over the person, the spirit that he's created in us, but rather there's a possibility that you could also translate this verse that it's the person, the spirit there, the person doing the yearning jealously is the, the human. And so it would read something like this, that the spirit that he caused to dwell in us envies intensely. In other words, the one who's being jealous there in a sinful way is the person who is jealously envying other people. So that's one possible interpretation. Do you see that? And the other interpretation is the way the ESV renders it, that the one that is being jealous is God being jealous over us. So there's two different ways. Let me summarize this if you weren't following me. One way to think of it is, is that we, in a sinful way, are being jealous of one another. The other way to interpret this, and this is the way the ESV renders this verse, is that it's God being jealous of us, wanting us to give up our false counterfeit loves. Now let me say this, I think that the ESV has rendered it correctly, but both renderings are saying true things. We do, we do envy, that's, that's kind of been part of what James has been saying up to this point. That there's these passions that war within you, and so you're envying over one another. You're, you're yearning jealously for the things around you, don't do that. Or I think the ESV renders it better that what's actually going on here is that it is God jealously yearning over us because we are his people. My conclusion is that the context leads me to conclude that the way the ESV has rendered this text is best. Where do I get that from? The preceding verse, the preceding verse, verse five, talks about spiritual adultery and God is our husband in this spiritual sense. And so to me, it would make more immediate sense that the one who is yearning here is God. And then we see in this quote where James says, where he refers to this theme in the Old Testament about God being jealous, we see that in the Old Testament. Let me read Zechariah chapter 8, verse 2. The prophet says, thus says the Lord of hosts. Think of this picture of how God longs for the spiritual faithfulness of his people. The prophet says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion. That's a word describing Israel. Or, or we can think of it even of ourselves in a new covenant sense way. I am jealous for Zion, for my people, with great jealousy, jealousy and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Exodus chapter 34, the renewal of the covenant before Moses dies, verse 11 and following says this, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. These false, these, 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 these foreign peoples that are worshiping false gods. And the problem, the reason God wanted his people to separate himself from these people is not because God was a racist. 
it's because they were worshiping false gods and God did not want his bride, Israel, to give themselves over to be influenced by these people that would drag them away into false worship. Verse 12, he says, Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, their place of worship. For you shall worship, worship, verse 14, no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. <laughs> what, a, what a description. God is saying, my name is Jealous. Now, what does that mean? We think of jealousy in a sinful way. But when God is jealous, there's no sin in it. God, who is the one and the only one who rightly and sinlessly demands adoration and allegiance and worship, is the only one that the word jealous can be used to describe his nature and it not be sinful, but a great and glorious thing. And that's what I think the context leads me to think because in verse 4, we are adulterous to God. And in verse 5, he's saying, here's this picture, see this. Christians, see this. Those of you, those all of us on some level that are struggling with worldliness, see this. We need to get our eyes off of it and have this picture of God. Because what's the best way to fight our sins is to get our eyes off of our ability to fight our sins and to get our eyes on God who is fighting for us. And verse 5 lifts our eyes to a God who is a heavenly husband for his people, who is yearning, jealously loving us, wooing us, guaranteeing that he will bring his people back. And when we see that, when we see a God who is committed to his people with a fierce, jealous wrath where he commands us to flee from our false gods and commands us to come back to him and guarantees that we will, it will bolster our weak, adulterous hands as we fight our worldliness. That's the picture of verse 5. And then verse 6. How does God do this? But he gives more grace. <laughs> He's been beating us up up to this point. James, 1, 4, chapters, uh, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 is hard. It beats us up. You're fighting because of this passion inside of you. And your real problem is not just that you're fighting with people because of this passion, but you are cheating on God. That's James 4, verses 1 through 5. And he wants James, the Holy Spirit through James, I think, wants to back us up into a corner so that we will have a right picture of who we are, of our neediness, of our worldliness, even after salvation. And he wants to back us up into a corner so that we will finally unclitch our fists from this world and realize that our only hope is what he says in verse 6, is that he, meaning God, gives more grace. He gives grace. That's your only hope. And he gives us grace. What is grace? Grace isn't just some ambiguous 
spiritual concept. Grace is his son, Jesus, the man, Christ Jesus, who is the mediator between God and men, who comes and becomes like us yet without sin, who is tempted in every ways as we are yet without sin, who knows what it is to be tempted with worldliness and then lays down his perfect life on the cross to bear the wrath of God for his people so that the wrath of God, the anger of God, the jealousy of God would be, would be satisfied on the cross and removed and he gives us his spirit and his righteousness and even though we still struggle with this dead alligator that is sitting between our knees God has promised that he will give us more grace and the grace that he gives always demands a response the Christ that he gives us the son that he gives us the death on the cross that he gives us, the spirit that comes and makes us alive, the forgiveness, the justification, the adoption, the promise that he will bring us home and glorify us, that he gives us always demands a response. And what's the response? It's the second half of verse six. Therefore it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to who? To the humble. So God's grace, the fact that God is so committed to you, dear Christian, that even when we cheat on God, he gives more grace. How does God deal with a cheating spouse? He doesn't go to court. He woos her over and over with more love, more grace, and he melts the hardness of her heart, and he woos it back to himself. And how does he do that? He does that through his word. He does that through his body. He may even be doing that through this sermon right now for somebody that is in the clutches of worldliness. He gives more grace. Come back to him. Come back to your father. Come back to your husband. Be faithful to God. He is worth it. He alone deserves your worship. He alone deserves your fidelity. In summary, I say this and I end. The Christian life is a battle over the heart. It's a battle over the heart. Every person in this room is a complex internal war of competing affections. And the good news of the gospel is that when God makes you new in Christ, he gives you a new heart. And even though you may struggle for a while, he guarantees that your new heart will win out because he gives more grace. Although that's true, our old nature will still, although defeated, like a dead snake, like a dead gator with his nervous system still twitching, will at times vex us. And it can still bite. To give ourselves over to God is to cheat on, the, cheat on him. Or to give ourselves over to the world is to cheat on God. It's to put ourselves in a position of fixed hostility towards him. Friends, this is a terrible place to be. And by the way, every one of us at various times in our life have been there. Amen? Let's not, don't, do not, please don't do this. Don't think because of the forcefulness with which I'm preaching this text, don't impose on me some level of holiness that I do not have. This is a present battle for all of us, even me. 
This is a terrible place to be, to give ourselves over to worldliness. And when we are there, we cannot see straight. We can't see ourselves rightly. We will justify. We will fight with our brothers and sisters. And the very people that God has given to encourage us and to bring us back, to help protect us, and to save us from going down into that pit of destruction, we cut ourselves off from, and we come up with a million reasons why they just don't understand. And that, friends, is the obscurity and the lie that comes from this false lover, which is the world. And the call of this text The call of this text is meant to be like a heavenly gust of wind to blow the clouds of confusion away from us so that we will see ourselves, we will see the world, and we will see God more clearly. And we will see these counterfeit pleasures that always lie. And we will see the great need that we have. And we will humble ourselves and we will return to our God who alone can satisfy. Because he, he gives, he gives more grace. And he gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, <laughs> humble us. Humble us. We're proud people. We're proud people. We drink. We drink from polluted faucets. We wear muddy lensed glasses and we think we know what we're doing but we don't but in spite of all that you give more grace you give more grace and you give it in the person and work of your son Jesus and the good news of the gospel and the Holy Spirit that resides in us and you woo us back Lord there's somebody in this room who's, who's in the clutches of world, worldliness Lord save them rescue them bring them back bring them back Work humility in them. Let them not let the sun go down on this day without them repenting to to you by getting with a brother or sister and confessing their sins. Lord, do that. Work that in somebody's life this morning. And for my friends that are in this room that don't know you, Lord, Lord, break through their deadness of their heart and give them a new heart so that they can see that their only hope is Christ, the grace that you give in Christ. Let them turn from their sin and let them put their hope in Jesus and be saved and be joined to you. Lord, help us as we worship and respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen.